If you would like a free newsletter on this or other subjects, just give us a call at Christian Answers. The phone number is area code 512-218-8022. That's 512-218-8022. Or you could email us at cdebater at aol.com. That's cdebater at aol.com. my first question is, in, in light of uh, your article and uh, the fact that your article very strongly presents uh, the idea that uh, you reject the concept of irresistible grace, and we'll get into reading some of the sections here, and I encourage you to read those sections you want to read. In light of that, you and I are responding to one of the key issues of the Reformation in a different way. And in essence, my first question to you would be, do you feel that the reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, were in error in emphasizing the deadness of man in sin and the absolute necessity, uh, not just necessity, but sufficiency of the grace of God to bring a person to salvation. Well, first of all, James, I'm very ignorant of the reformers. I have not had time to read them. There are truckloads, I guess, of their writings. And I like to just kind of pretend that uh, we're back there in the days of the apostles before all of these things were written. And I like to go to the Bible. So whether the Reformers said this or that, I don't know. Greetings and welcome once again to our program. I'm Larry Wessels, your host, and I want to thank you for being with me here today. Well, today on Christian Answers, we're doing a topic that's fairly unusual. I wasn't even planning on doing this show up until just a few days ago uh, when I got an email from somebody who asked me about this particular book. You can see it on your screen, Confessions of a Heretic by Dave Hunt. If you look at the bottom of the uh, book cover there, you see uh, an endorsement by Hal Lindsey, the author of The Late Great Planet Earth. He says, if you believe in God, this book will challenge you to the very ground and roots of your faith. If you do not believe in God, it will force you to honestly reevaluate why not. Uh, now, I just got the impression uh, from that email uh, that maybe with this video shoot coming up as we had planned to do other topics that you know, I, I did have this book sent to me by, as a gift by my dear friend Bob L. Ross. Now, Bob Ross and me, you know, he's the director of Pilgrim Publications, one of the largest publishers of the works of Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the world. Anyway, a few years back, we did, a, uh, did an analysis video about uh, Dave Hunt, uh, and his attack against Calvinism and the Baptist confessions and things of that nature. So we have, a, have that video out there. In fact, uh, if you, you can see it right now on your screen for reference. So we did that video. And this email that came in uh, 
came in from someone who had watched that video where Brother Bob had mentioned this book I'm telling you about by Dave Hunt. Now, Bob had forgot to bring it with him that day. And it always kind of bugged me because I, you know, I like to have everything thorough and complete. And in fact, the next time we did a video shoot here in Austin, Texas, he did bring it with him. And we videotaped us just a, a little five-minute segment with the book that we were planning to edit into that other video about Dave Hunt and the Baptist Confessions and so forth. But then more time went by, and somehow that little clip, that little few-minute clip was lost somewhere. Who knows? And, uh, well, lo and behold, uh, make a long story short, uh, Bob, when I sent him an email about this book, I said, well, just send me a, a, a photograph of it so I can prove to everybody it really exists. <laughs> he, he, did, he did better than that. He sent me the book himself as a gift to me. So this is actually Bob's book that he purchased originally, I, I guess, back in 1972. It still has all his notes and everything. He even had a picture of it. It's got a... a a sticker in here from his Pilgrim Bookstore. A uh, little note here saying, this book is not to leave my office. Bob. Well, Bob himself sent it out of his office and sent it to me as a gift. And I got to thinking, you know, maybe I'll make a video out of this thing. A lot of Dave Hunt's known all around the place for his uh, other books he's written. Uh, but a lot of people don't know about this book. Uh, so... I thought since Dave spent a lot of time, particularly near the end of his life, uh, attacking the doctrines of grace, attacking men of God who uh, you know, are historic Calvinists. You know, Dave looked at Calvinism as a, a very evil thing, a very anti-biblical thing. And uh, he's got a lot of followers out there that just believe every word that Dave Hunt says about Calvinism without ever stopping to find out what the Calvinists themselves have to say. And do the, does the Bible actually agree with them or not? Um, I first became aware of this problem with Dave when uh, I heard a, him on James White's, you know, James White is the uh, uh, director of Alpha and Omega Ministries out of Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, he's done you know, several shows with me, and we highly recommend his ministry. We think he does a great job. He's done more debates than anyone I know against all kinds of world religions and heretics. Um, he's got a great show on the internet called uh, the, the Dividing Line, and also another uh, great series of shows he's done on YouTube and other places, I guess, called uh, Radio Free Geneva. I highly recommend that to you if you want to do a Google search or try to find it on uh, uh, YouTube. Look up James White's Radio Free Geneva. What James does there is he specifically goes after all these Arminians and Pelagians that attack the sovereignty of God and uh, uh, the doctrines of grace, otherwise known as Calvinism. And... Uh, Having heard his Radio Free Geneva, uh, I heartily recommend it to you. He, he, he'll play clips of the, the Arminians or whoever it is attacking uh, Calvinism. Then he stops the clip 
And then he answers it point blank with scripture and then plays it some more and then answers every little wrong thing they say. And he, he just guns it down point by point. Uh, great stuff. So I encourage you to do that. like Calvinists because they've chosen to follow John Calvin instead of Jesus Christ. I have a problem with them. They're following men instead of the Word of God. And I'm going to be the one standing on top of my hands, standing on top of my feet, standing on a stump and crying out, He died for all! Those who elected were selected. Well, uh, first of all, James, uh, I'm very ignorant of the reformers. I think I probably uh, know more about Calvinism than most of the people who call themselves Calvinists. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever... Ladies and gentlemen, James White is a hyper-Calvinist. Now, whatever we do in Baptist life, we don't need to be teaming up with hyper-Calvinists. I've said the other day in class that I don't understand the difference between hyper-Calvinism and Calvinism. It, it seems to me that Calvin was a hyper-Calvinist. Uh, <laughs> Right, I, I don't think there is typically any difference between Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism. Read my book. And now, from our underground bunker, deep beneath Bruton Parker College, where no one would think to look, safe from all those moderate Calvinists, Dave Hunt fans, and those who have read and reread George Bryson's book, we are Radio Free Geneva, broadcasting the truth about God's freedom to save for His own eternal glory. Now, on this debate I heard on the radio, it started out with uh, Dave Hunt as a guest on James White's radio show. And uh, as they were talking, all of a sudden they got into the doctrine of Calvinism, and next thing you know, you got a, a full-fledged debate going on between the two of them when it was supposed to be just a friendly discussion. And then that, I think, set up the whole table for where Dave Hunt started, you know, came out with his book, uh, What Love Is This? Against Calvinism. And then he even wrote a debate book uh, with James White uh, uh, on Calvinism. He, he, he got annihilated so bad. And I know, you know, I, I'm biased, but... I think any anyone that's even unbiased, if they had heard that radio debate that day when Dave Hunt was on the on the radio with uh, James White talking about Calvinism, I mean, it was obvious to anyone 
that Dave Hunt was completely ignorant of the history of Calvinism, the doctrines of grace. I mean, just abject ignorance. And his defense constantly through, through that debate was, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't read Calvin. I don't do this. I, I haven't, it, you know, to all the pointed questions that uh, James White was bringing up. Well, first of all, James, I'm very ignorant of the Reformers. I have not had time to read them. There are truckloads, I guess, of their writings. And I like to just kind of pretend that uh, we're back there in the days of the apostles before all of these things were written. And I like to go to the Bible. So whether the Reformers said this or that, I don't know. It was, it was quite an amazing uh, situation. And then for Dave to so quickly after that start going into a full-fledged attack against Calvinism, when it was obvious from that debate that he was ignorant on the whole subject. So how is he all of a sudden in a, in a, 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 a month or a year going to all of a sudden catch up with uh, you know, all this history and scholarship that's been out there for hundreds of years? All right, I'd like to point out here and what you're seeing on the screen is the life and death of Dave Hunt. In fact, his name is actually David Charles Haddon Hunt. And he was born on September the 30th, 1926. And he died on April the 5th, 2013. Now, what's ironic here is Dave Hunt's middle names are Charles Haddon, named obviously after Charles Haddon Spurgeon the famous Prince of Preachers from the 19th century. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a five-point Calvinist and a Reformed Baptist, just like James White is, his adversary, uh, in this debate we've already discussed. And it's interesting to me that he's got the middle name of one of the most famous Reformed Baptists, yet at the same time he's attacking the very person who holds the doctrines he's blasting in his book. By the way, uh, check out our video on YouTube about Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We also have some other material about him as well. But this will show you the stark contrast between Dave Hunt and Charles Haddon Spurgeon. What you're seeing here is page 11 from the debate book called Debating Calvinism, Five Points, Two Views of Dave Hunt and James White. I'm looking at page 11 from this book. And the viewers at home can read this for themselves. Here James White says, In the late summer of 2000, the year 2000, I interviewed Dave Hunt on KPXQ Radio in Phoenix. Now, our viewers of this video have already heard some of that. Mr. Hunt had just published an article in the Berean Call attacking the reform position. The article misquoted Matthew 23:37 and presented the standard objections to Calvinism. Objections based primarily upon evangelical Arminian traditions and common misconceptions concerning the actual beliefs of Calvinists. I had written a full-length response to Norman Geisler on the same topic in the book, The Potter's Freedom. But Dr. Geisler had declined every opportunity for dialogue, especially public dialogue and debate. I knew Dave Hunt would not decline such an invitation. So here in this book, 
James White's bringing up that radio debate where Dave Hunt was absolutely annihilated biblically. And of course, he admitted he was totally ignorant about the reformers. Uh, The point I would like to stress here is that Dave Hunt was already 73 years old, going on 74, when he debated James White on the radio, admitting right off the bat he was ignorant of Reformation theology and history. Now, in my case, I was born again on May 16, 1981, about two months after I turned 24 years old. Although I started out a five-point Arminian, and actually debated Calvinist at the time, before 1981 was over, I was already reading the Reformers and Calvinists to learn what they had to say. So here I am at the age 24. I get saved in May of 1981. I'm debating Calvinists, but I have this voracious appetite to learn all I can about God. So later in 1981, I started actually reading what the Calvinists had to say, even though at the time I was a five-point Arminian without even knowing what an Arminian was. <laughs> it was just seemed to be natural when you don't have systematic theology going for you to just go with sort of an Arminian type of attitude toward the Word of God. But nevertheless, in the latter part of 1981, I started reading what Calvinists had to say. I read John Calvin's institutes of the christian religion i read martin luther's the bondage of the will where he's basically attacking the whole idea of free willism i read aw pink's the sovereignty of god i read lorraine bettner's reformed doctrine of predestination i read john bunyan and he's the one that wrote the pilgrim's progress And he was a Reformed Baptist. And I'm, of course, currently now, in my old age, am a Reformed Baptist myself, just like Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a Reformed Baptist, which means you're a five-point Calvinist. That's what Reformed Baptist means, uh, if you want to really shorten it up to a a concise definition. And when it comes to Spurgeon, I read uh, his sermon, For Whom Did Christ Die?, which is all about limited atonement to the elect only, which Dave Hunt would deny. And then, of course, I've read A Defense of Calvinism, which you can see the cover there, and we're going to play a little clip of it here just to show you what Spurgeon himself is saying about Calvinism in direct contrast to what Dave Hunt says in his book, What Love Is This? Showing that Dave Hunt is less than honest when he tries to portray Charles Haddon Spurgeon as something less than a real five-point Calvinist. Very disingenuous, to say the least, if not downright dishonest. So anyway, the point I'm making here is I'm 24 years old. I'm reading all these books from late 1981 into 1982 to learn all I can. And I was finding out quite a bit of biblical truth here as I did the studies. Now, I'm just a young man, and then I'm thinking about Dave Hunt. How does Dave Hunt go all the way to the age of 73 and not know or have not studied any of this information for all those years? It's it's mind-boggling, to say the least. I I think I probably uh, know more about Calvinism than most of the people who call themselves Calvinists. Now, viewers, did you just hear that comment 
from the 73-year-old Dave Hunt, making the claim after previously he had claimed that he was ignorant about the reformers and the history and everything else. Here's this old guy who says he's ignorant, and he says he knows more about Calvinism than the Calvinists themselves. How ridiculous, how absurd. Does anyone with a brain out there understand how arrogant this guy thinks he is in his absolute ignorance? It's, it's just totally absurd. I learned before the year was out that Calvinist doctrine was actually what the Bible taught. And thus, even though I was born again in May 16th of 1981, by the end of the year, I, I was already a five-point Calvinist. So to me, that proved that you can be an Arminian and be truly saved. And at the same time, you can be a Calvinist to be truly saved. And in my case, I actually believe both positions at different points during my born-again experience as a Christian. So that's why I don't condemn non-Calvinists as being not saved. To me, that's just crazy, because I know I was born again on May 16th, even though I was a five-point Arminian at the time, because really, our Arminianism, Pelagianism, well, Pelagianism is actually a, a damnable heresy, so I'm not going to get into that. But Arminianism is heretical, but it's not damnable heresy. Well, anyway, looking at this situation, you've got a 73-year-old to 74-year-old man named Dave Hunt who's debating James White, and he says he's ignorant about the Reformers. And now, all of a sudden, he's arguing from a base of ignorance about why Calvinism's wrong in this radio debate and also through his newsletters and stuff at the Berean Call. Now, here we are looking at page 13 from the book, Debating Calvinism, where James White goes on and says, It was most surprising then to hear only a few months later that Mr. Hunt was writing a book about this very subject, especially in light of his own confession of ignorance of the topic. I informed him that in light of the errors of understanding he had enunciated during the radio program, I felt it was out of line for him to be publishing on the topic. The publication of Dave Hunt's book, What Love Is This?, prompted me to write an open letter, which was posted on our website and very quickly distributed to a very wide audience. The book was disappointing on every level. The tenor was harsh. The attacks upon historic figures were unfair and unkind, revealing a bias that no honest historian should abide. The misuse of sources was rampant and included numerous errors in understanding, even of my own work, which played a prominent role in Mr. Hunt's broadside at, quote, Calvinism, end quote. The same misconceptions spoken in self-professed ignorance in August of 2000 were now being promoted under the banner of research and argumentation in print. But most importantly, I noted the continued enshrinement of tradition over sound exegesis of scriptures. Now, basically, we're seeing something that's very disingenuous on Dave Hunt's part. Here, in my case, as I do this video here, I'm saved in 1981. I've been on both sides of the issue. I've studied the Reformers in historical documentation and theology since 1981. Currently, we're doing this in the year 2018. So that's 37 years later. 
So for 37 years of my life as a Christian, I've known about the Reformers, I've studied the history, I've read all the information, I've checked both sides of the argument, back and forth. I'm closing in now on 40 years in Christian service. So I know a lot about all this stuff. But now here's Dave Hunt, who at 73 to 74 years old, says he's ignorant in all this stuff. So where has he been all these years? Or he didn't even bother to study any of this stuff, yet he's acting like he's some kind of authority on it. And then as James White says in his book here, he's coming out with a book already, like he's some kind of authority on something he's already admitted a few months earlier, so he doesn't know a thing about. And then as James White points out, it's full of errors and things like that, which goes without saying. This is a real problem. How can an old man like this suddenly become some kind of authority when he's just ignorant and he got slaughtered in that debate and he refused to debate James White any further. And that's why he had to do this book thing so he'd have a a better opportunity to deal with everything. But anyway, my main point here is here's Dave Hunt in his late years, not too long off before he, he dies. He's coming out with this book based on Something he slapped together at the last moment because he didn't have decades of understanding or study. I myself, you know, of course, I'm nowhere near as old as he is at that time. I myself right now am 61 years old, but I've already had 37 years of experience (laughs) with all of this, the history and, and theology. And Dave Hunt at 73, 74 doesn't have anything like that. So... Anyway, I I just wanted to stress to the audience how disingenuous this is. It's like dealing with a kindergartner who thinks he knows it all. I I think I probably uh, know more about Calvinism than most of the people who call themselves Calvinists. So anyway, with that said, let's move on with the video. Uh, Well, apparently he he, he tried it with his uh, uh, What Love Is This? Sort of like with Norman Geisler doing his thing too. But uh, anyway... I figured because I have to deal because I, you know, I'm a, I'm a five-point Calvinist. I just, what is tulip in Calvinism? What is five-point Calvinism? The tulip of Calvinism is the acronym which represents the five primary points which represent Calvinism, meaning total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Hence, they are called the five points of Calvinism. The five points emerged from the Synod of Dort, 1618 through 1619. As you can see there, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Quote, the system of Calvinism adheres to a very high view of Scripture, and seeks to derive its theological formulations based solely on God's word. It focuses on God's sovereignty, stating that God is able and willing by virtue of his omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence to do whatever he desires with his creation. It also maintains that within the Bible are the following teachings that God, by his sovereign grace, predestines people into salvation, that Jesus died only for those predestined, that God regenerates the individual where he is then able and wants to choose God, and that it is impossible for those who are redeemed to lose their salvation. 
Following are the five points of Calvinism listed, explained, and supported with Scripture. One, total depravity. Man is completely touched and affected by sin in all that he is. In nature, he is completely fallen, but is not as bad as he could be in action, i.e., not all murder, etc. Furthermore, this total depravity means that the unregenerate will not, of their own free will, choose to receive Christ. 1. It is the unbeliever who is deceitful and wicked, that's Jeremiah 17, 9, full of evil, Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, loves darkness rather than the light, and does evil, that's John chapter 3, verse 19, does not seek for God nor does any good, that's Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, is ungodly, Romans 5, 6, dead in his sins, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, by nature of child of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, cannot accept or understand spiritual things, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, and a slave of sin, Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 20. Point number two of Calvinism, unconditional election. God elects a person based upon nothing in that person because there is nothing in him that would make him worthy of being chosen. Rather, God's election is based on what is in God. God chose us because he decided to bestow his love and grace upon us, not because we are worthy in and of ourselves of being saved. One. Election is the sovereign act of God, where from before the foundation of the world, he chose those whom he would save. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. This election to salvation is not conditioned upon any foreseen faith. Romans chapter 9 verse 16. Or good works of any individual. Romans chapter 9 verse 11. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9. The election is based completely on God's sovereign choice according to the kind intention of his will. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. God chose the elect because he decided to bestow his love upon them. John chapter 3, verse 16. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Based solely on his sovereign grace. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. And for his glory. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. Point number three. Limited atonement. Christ bore the sin only of the elect, not everyone who ever lived. 1. Christ's blood was sufficient for all, but not all sin was imputed to Christ. Christ's blood is sufficient to cover all people, but the sufficiency relates to his divine value, which is different than our legal debt. Sin is a debt, Matthew chapter 6 verse 12 with Luke chapter 11 verse 4, since it is breaking the law of God, 1 John 3 4. In limited atonement, Calvinists are saying that there was a limit to whose sins were imputed to Christ in a legal sense. They are not denying the sufficiency of Christ's blood to cover all people. Instead, they look at the legal aspect of the sin debt. People's sin debts were transferred to Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, and were canceled on the cross, not when we believe, Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, legally speaking, those canceled sins cannot be held against the sinner because their quality of being a debt has been canceled by being paid on the cross. 
John chapter 19, verse 30. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. If the debt is canceled, it does not exist and cannot be held against the debtor sinner. Therefore, Christ only legally bore the sins of the elect, even though his blood was sufficient to cover all. Also, consider 1 Samuel 3.14, which says, quote, Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. End quote. Point four of Calvinism. Irresistible grace. The term, unfortunately, suggests a mechanical or coercive force upon an unwilling subject. This is not the case. Instead, it is the act of God making the person willing to receive him. It does not mean that a person cannot resist God's will. It means that when God moves to save, regenerate a person, the sinner cannot thwart God's movement, and he will be regenerated. 1. God moves the heart of the person where he wishes it to go. That's Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The choice and mercy of God depend on God's desire, not man's ability. Romans chapter 9, verse 18. Point 5. Perseverance of the saints. That we are so secure in Christ that we cannot fall away. Point 1. Jesus will not lose any who have been given to him by the Father. John chapter 6, verse 38 through 39. He will get eternal life to them so they will never perish. John chapter 3, verse 16. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 28. And those who leave the faith were never believers to begin with. 1 John 2.19 Tulip in the Bible, what Jesus said. John 13.18 I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. Quote, He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. End quote. What Paul said. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, quote, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 1 Timothy 5.21 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain those principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality, end quote. Dictionary Calvinism, quote, the theological system of John Calvin found chiefly in his institutes, especially as formulated by T. Basa, accepted with various degrees of modification by most non-Lutheran reformed churches. It holds certain doctrines characteristic of Lutheranism, as well as other elements peculiar to itself. Among the former are the doctrines of Scripture as the only rule of faith of the bondage of human free will through sin and justification, QB, by grace through faith, end quote. References, Cross, F.L., and Elizabeth A. Livingstone, editors, the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, Oxford, New York, Oxford University Press, 2005. Now, another thing I'd like to point out here to our viewers, I'm not going to read all this, but I will show each page. This is a paper I put together, compiled and edited by Larry A. Wessels, back in my mid-20s, back in the 
early 1980s. But it's a quick synopsis of the doctrines of grace, or otherwise known as the five points of Calvinism. So you can see here the doctrines of grace paper. Here's page one. And as we go through it, we start to see how it all comes together, doctrinally speaking, from the scripture. I mentioned the five points of Arminianism on page two. So we see here, then we get into the actual points to refute the five points of Arminianism. Point one, total depravity. We move on here to page three of this paper. As you look through it, you see plenty of scripture references and instruction concerning this matter. And we go over here to page four, point two, unconditional election, Philippians chapter two, verse 13. And people at home seeing this on video can freeze frame it and read this information for themselves since I am not going to turn, you know, spend the time to do it here. Now we're looking at page five. There's more information, important information concerning, and as we see down there at the bottom of the page, point three, limited atonement. We go through it here to page six. You have those three options there. Christ died to save all men without distinction. Christ died to save no one in particular. Or point three, Christ died to save a certain number. And that third point is exactly what the scripture teaches. That's all on page six. We move on to page seven. We see point four there, irresistible grace. And we get to many teachings about that found in the scripture. Freeze frame these pages as you will to see more about that. Then we go to page eight. Now, I always like this here in the middle of page eight. There's either man's will, the devil's will, or God's will. Now, which will do you think is really going to win? Of course, we know it's always going to be God's will. The other two, man's will and the devil's will, are subservient. But God's will always prevails. Now, point five there, perseverance of the saints is found starting at the bottom of page eight. Now, here on page nine, we continue to show why perseverance of the saints is what is biblically taught in the Arminian view is wrong. And then finally, we get to page 10 here where we see uh, a lot of the reference material I used in compiling this paperwork. And you can see that here, freeze frame the screen and uh, look it over and get your information. All right, one last thing I'd like to show in this little part of this video is the difference between the Arminian view, which would represent Dave Hunt, and the five-point Calvinist view, which would represent the historical reformers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, others, James White, myself, etc. You see here on page one, the Arminian view, free will, as opposed to the Calvinist view, total depravity. And freeze frame your screen to research all the information there. And then looking on to the next page, we see point two, the Arminian view, conditional election versus the Calvinist view, unconditional election. Once again, you have your scripture references there. Freeze frame it and do the research. It's all right there. Okay, the next page. Point three, the Arminian view, universal atonement. The Calvinist view, limited atonement. Once again, your references are, are there underneath. Freeze frame the screen and do your research. Okay, the next page. Point four, the Arminian view, obstructionable grace as opposed to irresistible grace from the Calvinist perspective. 
Once again, do the research. Finally, we have point five, the Arminian view, falling from grace, you can lose your salvation, versus the Calvinist view, which is perseverance of the saints. And there's your scripture references and so forth underneath. Freeze frame the screen and do the research. Okay, for those that are interested, these papers that I just went through briefly are available, The Doctrines of Grace and points showing the difference between Arminian view and the Calvinist view. If you email us at cdebater at aol.com and request free copies of these papers and send your mailing address along with that email, I will, as I have time, send those to you free through the mail. So you'll have these papers themselves. All right, with that, let's get back to our video. I believe what the Word of God says, and if you want to really know why I believe that, then see my video, The Sovereignty of God. You can see it on your screen there. It's on YouTube. Just type in Sovereignty of God, Larry Wessels, in your YouTube search box, and uh, it'll come up. And from there, you can watch why I am a historic Calvinist. Okay, here we are on the first point. As you see in the newsletter, unlimited sovereignty of God. God cannot be defeated. He rules and controls everything and everyone. And now you got a lot of verses there, but I'm just going to read one of them. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. All right, the next point. Divine foreordination. God has decreed the end from the beginning beforehand. Looking at Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 11. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. You get that? It's not your will, but it's God's will. Don't forget that as we go through here. All right, the next point. God's plan is eternal. All future events and actions of men are absolutely certain from God's perspective. Now we see here 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So you've got a lot of interesting stuff going on right there in God's eternal plan. Okay, now the next one. God's plan is unchangeable. No one can frustrate God's eternal plan. For this we have Isaiah chapter 14, verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, 
so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. So God's plan is unchangeable. Next, the divine plan includes future acts of men. The acts of men, whether minor or great, are already accounted for in God's plan. Now we'll see this in action in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. So here, Jesus is already predicting everything that's going to happen ahead of time. Next, the divine plan includes chance events. God cannot be taken by surprise, and in fact, controls chance occurrences. All right, we see here in 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 28 and also verse 34. And Micaiah said, If thou return at all in peace, the Lord had not spoken by me. And he said, Hearken, O people, every one of you. And a certain man drew a bow at a venture and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. Wherefore, he said unto the driver of his chariot, Turn thine hand and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. So here this archer shoots an arrow by chance, and it just happens to hit the king of Israel, fulfilling the prophecy by the prophet Micaiah. All right, next, some events are inevitably certain. Anytime God reveals a prophecy, it means that the future event or events is absolutely certain because God will make it come to pass. And we see here in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Next, we see sinful acts are overruled by God and included in plan. God works even evil acts of men into good for his elect. And we see here Amos chapter 3, verse 6. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Also see Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Do you see how God has, by his determinate and counsel and foreknowledge, ordained this, but yet the men who did it are still considered wicked and are responsible for their wicked actions? All things are made and maintained by God. God is in complete control. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, 
and all that is therein. Thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Next, we see God's plan is prearranged. The destiny of each individual is determined before he even comes into existence. See Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. So before Jeremiah was even born, God had already ordained and sanctified him to be a prophet. Next, and a lot of people really hate this, Satan and evil spirits carry out God's plan. Satan and his legions, knowingly or unknowingly, accomplish God's plan. And just for one example, see 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 through 23. And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit, and stood before the Lord, and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail also. Go forth, and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. Although most people, if they were to ask me, are you a Calvinist? I would never say yes to a a question just like that. Uh, Simply because most people don't have a proper understanding of what a Calvinist is. They, you know, most of them think a Calvinist is someone that wears a red union suit, has a pitchfork in his hand, and has a, has a, a, a tail and some horns out of his head. <laughs> so, so I never admit to being a Calvinist until I get a definition from the person asking me that question, uh, what they mean by that. And once I find out what they mean, I can a- answer yes or no, and then go from there. So anyway, I felt like since Dave went through all this trouble to attack Calvinism, I would uh, maybe... Uh, Return the favor a little bit. You know, you don't have to be a Calvinist to be a, a Christian. So don't get me wrong. Now, if you're a Christian, biblically, you should be a Calvinist <laughs> because that's what the Bible teaches. But, but I can understand that there's people out there who have fuzzy ideas about a lot of things. And so, but they can love the Lord Jesus Christ and they can still be saved. So, so you can, uh, you can, you you don't have to be a Calvinist to be a true born again Christian, but if you really study your Bible, I'm convinced you'll end up being one because <laughs> that's what the Bible teaches so clearly. But anyway, 
I want to deal a little bit with this book uh, since Dave Hunt's left his leg- legacy behind him with his What Love Is This and his attack on Calvinism. I just figured I would uh, join this little fray a little bit with since I happen to have his book that most people don't know about, uh, Confessions of a Heretic. And I figure we'll just spend a little time and take a look at this book and see what Dave Hunt had to say. Now, he wrote this back in 1972, and it's obvious to me after everything he has done since then that he never changed his ways. He, he went right to his grave still believing the same things he wrote in this book. So I think it's interesting that we ought to analyze it a little bit to understand where he was coming from when he came out with this harsh attack against Calvinism and, uh, uh, you know, the doctrines of grace and putting his book out there and doing videos against it and everything else. Well, I think it all goes back to what he had to say in this book. And so what we're going to do today is take a little look at what Dave had to say so we can understand better why he is so against Calvinism as it is found in the Bible. Okay, let's, let's open it up here and take a look at what we find here. On page 43, he talks about being in the Plymouth Brethren uh, organization. All right, Dave Hunt was a member of the Plymouth Brethren. And to reference into this, I've got a, a section from the Wikipedia the online encyclopedia. And we read here from the Wikipedia page, it says, The Plymouth Brethren are a conservative, low-church, nonconformist, evangelical Christian movement whose history can be traced to Dublin, Ireland in the late 1820s, originating from Anglicanism. Among other beliefs, the group emphasizes sola scriptura, the belief that the Bible is the supreme authority for church doctrine and practice over and above any other source of authority. And it just goes on from there to talk a little bit more about their churches. It does mention in a third paragraph here, an influential figure among the early Plymouth Brethren was John Nelson Darby, 1800 to 1882. Here from Wikipedia, we see what they say about John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby, 18 November 1800 to 29 April 1882, was an Anglo-Irish Bible teacher, one of the influential figures among the original Plymouth Brethren and the founder of the Exclusive Brethren. He is considered to be the father of modern dispensationalism and futurism. Pre-tribulation rapture theology was popularized extensively in the 1830s by John Nelson Darby and the Plymouth Brethren, and further popularized in the United States in the early 20th century by the wide circulation of the Schofield Reference Bible. And of course, those at home can freeze frame this screenshot from Wikipedia, if they want to read more here, or just go online and look up this information. Of course, Dave Hunt's coming out of this environment, this background, this church. So let's find out a little bit more about him from the following video clip you're about to see. There was a concept that the early church, the pure church, 
disintegrated and was lost very quickly by the end of the second century. And it was only until the 19th century that certain people such as Thomas Campbell and Joseph Smith and J.N. Darby and of course uh, the Jehovah's Witness founder um, Charles Taze Russell and others said we are, I am, the one who has been called upon by God to raise up the true church for the latter days. They called themselves brethren. J.N. Darby came from Ireland. He became a part of their group and he and B.W. Newton worked together. And so dispensationalism uh, in the modern sense or in, in the sense it developed in the 19th century can be related directly to this uh, development of an ecclesiological understanding in Plymouth. Inspired by the genuine piety and zeal of the brethren, Darby made his official break with the Church of England. He began fellowshipping with the brethren, meeting in homes for prayer and the study of scriptures, and quickly became one of its leaders and staunchest advocates. As the movement grew, it came to be known as the Plymouth Brethren. Author and former dispensationalist William E. Cox explains, Darby referred to the church as the Brethren. The headquarters for the printing of the Brethren was in Plymouth. Thus it followed naturally for this new denomination to be called Plymouth Brethren, and the name stuck. In 1831, Darby attended a symposium hosted by Lady Theodosa Powerscourt, herself a woman of great piety and influence in the Brethren movement. The theme was Bible prophecy. Up until this point, Darby still held to the amillennial position taught by the Church of England. The French Revolution was a cataclysmic event that triggered a tremendous upsurge of prophetic speculation because it was so obviously anti-God, anti-authoritarian, so revolutionary that some people began to wonder if the French Revolution was part of the fulfillment of prophecy of the end days. And what it did, it inspired finally some of the not only responsible people but some on the fringe element to call together some Bible conferences. These became your first, uh, the Albury conferences and then the Powers Court conferences. The Powers Court meeting was to revolutionize Darby's view on prophecy as the new developments that were popping up among the brethren were given free expression. Some of the new expressions that were springing up would include the the issue concerning the rapture and it was it Bible prophecy was very prevalent at these meetings and it seems that from that point onward Darby started to write and to study more and um, his first publishings came subsequent to the Powers Court um, meetings. His positions on the rapture especially came very soon after. Not only did Darby introduce a new hermeneutic method of interpretation and draw a sharp distinction between the church and Israel. For the first time, at least in popular form, Darby taught a pre-tribulation rapture. Dispensationalism teaches a secret rapture which was never taught before in history. And that secret rapture is based on a very distinct program for Israel as compared to the church. Even though Paul the Apostle says that he has made Jew and Gentile one man, uh, the Dispensationalist says no, there will always be uh, the two-body approach uh, to um, eschatology and to prophetic and biblical understanding. So it was really a lot of new issues that came up in the time of the 1830s, thereabouts, 
which were created by John Nelson Darby and some of his associates uh, that generated this. As noted by Floyd Elmore in the Dictionary of Premillennial Theology, by his own testimony, Darby's dispensational premillennial eschatology was fully formed by 1833. In 1834, Darby wrote a letter to a friend and referred to the newly discovered pre-tribulation rapture theory, stating that the thoughts are new and the teaching new wine. Darby further understood that its newness wasn't simply in context to the Church of England, but to the entire 1800-year history of the church. He encouraged his friend to be discreet and publicly somewhat vague about this new wine, stating, quote, it would not be well to have it so clear, unquote. During the next 15 years, things progressed nicely for the emerging movement. Books and tracts were everywhere, and the new teaching that would become known as dispensationalism was creating no little stir. New members were joining the brethren and their influence began to be felt outside the confines of the British Isles. In 1845, the first of what would become many schisms tore the Plymouth Brethren almost in half. The problem was in large part centered on Darby's dogmatism and the manner in which these new teachings began to overwhelm the central message of Christ and the cross. That he was passionate about the things he believed and taught was one thing, but the way he began to treat people who didn't fully accept those beliefs was something entirely different. As Dr. Vern Poitras observed, Darby's contribution may have started with zeal for Christ, but it ended with an indiscriminate rejection of everyone out of conformity with his ideas. These actions inferred that Darby was pretty much self-centered. He was really out of control, and he was kind of autocratic in his dealing with people within the religious or church setting. Echoing one Mr. Grant, the great Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon pens a stinging rebuke and analysis of Darby and the Brethren. This controversial feeling often degenerating into something resembling regular quarrels is the chronic condition of Plymouth Brethrenism. They are in a state of constant antagonism with the Bethesda party. When they have no one of the opposite party to quarrel with, they will disagree among themselves. Such as uh, higher church government and things of that sort, you have Darby ending up exercising virtually a papal authority. And it's ironic that he would, would do that but he effectively cut off those who disagreed with him and he arrogated to himself really papal authority over the lives of others and the spiritual lives of others. A good example of this trend towards exclusivity and spiritual pride can be seen in the way Darby treated the Reverend Dr. G.F. Pentecost. When Dr. Pentecost failed to grasp a point Darby was making during a lecture, Darby in front of other ministers scolded him with these words, I'm here to supply exposition, not brains. This contentious spirit reared its ugly head again with American evangelist D.L. Moody. Again, according to Darby biographer W.G. Turner, Darby categorically disliked and disapproved of Moody and his ministry. 
He even wrote a letter to his followers warning that Moody would cause a great increase of worldliness into the church. Again, citing Pastor Spurgeon, Mr. Darby is, to all intents and purposes, a thorough pope, though under a Protestant name. He will never admit that he is an error, and therefore very naturally declines to argue with those who controvert the soundness of his views. Even more egregious was the way Darby treated George Mueller, the philanthropist whose work with the orphans and his life of faith and prayer are legendary even today. Darby had labeled another brethren pastor, B.W. Newton, a heretic, a term Darby would often use to mark people who disagreed with him. When Mueller received people who had been with Newton into his brethren fellowship in Bristol, Darby condemned and ultimately excommunicated Mueller for violating his principle of separation from evil. Known as the Bethesda Incident, this led to a split between Mueller and his followers, a group that became known as Open Brethren and Darby's, quote, exclusives. Author William Cox detailed the depth of this breach of Christian fellowship and charity, though attempts were made, most often by Mueller, to reconcile their relationship. These two former friends never saw each other again, and Darby continued to castigate Mueller until his death. Years later, Mueller, wrestling with the things he had been taught by Darby, noted, I am a constant reader of the Bible, and I soon found that what I was taught to believe did not always agree with what my Bible said. I came to see that I must either part company with John Darby or my precious Bible, and I chose to cling to my Bible and depart from Mr. Darby. Spurgeon concludes his Sword and Trial article with these devastating words. Plymouth brethren have no feeling wherever their principles are concerned. I know indeed of no sect or denomination so utterly devoid of kindness of heart. It is the most selfish religious system with which I am acquainted. It is entirely wrapped up in itself. It recognizes no other denomination whether the Church of England or either of the nonconformist denominations as a Church of Christ. Mr. Darby has again and again said in print as well as written in private that those who belong to his party in the metropolis constitute the only Church of Christ in London. Darby died in 1882. He lived in an era of great eschatological foment. The 19th century witnessed the beginning of several millennial movements, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, and the Jehovah's Witnesses, just to name a few. As historian Ernest R. Sandy observed, America, in the early 19th century, was drunk on the millennium. He's also talking here, as you see that on your screen, in the, the previous 42 pages, He's talking about getting in all kinds of financial trouble. He was having severe financial trouble. You can see here on page 13, there it says, The Bible verses I had learned to quote from earliest childhood and the faith in a great God somewhere up in heaven that I had for years professed so confidently seemed frighteningly impractical in face of the cold reality of 100,000 in bad checks 
appearing at the bank in the next few days without funds to cover them. Okay, now what he talks about through these opening chapters here is all the money that a business he was in is owing and, and cannot pay. In fact, they got so bad that when you get to page 36, as you see it there on your screen, this is already about chapter 6, it says out of the frying pan there, but right there where I've got it highlighted, he says, my promise to go to San Quentin willingly was more starkly real in the morning light than I wanted it to be. As you can see right ahead of that uh, highlighted quote, he's talking about needing a, an impossible $700,000 miracle. So as you're reading through his book here, you're finding a lot about his financial troubles in his business. Now, this is going back into the 1950s, as the book talks about. And by the way, this book is available through Amazon.com. Uh, I had someone ask me the other day about it, as I mentioned, and uh, I wasn't about to give up my gift from Bob L. Ross here uh, to that person since it's the only copy we have, but I did find on Amazon.com this book is available. There was a, When I last looked, right before this broadcast, there were uh, 14 copies available, I think it was, and uh, they were available for $14.95 at the time of this taping. So uh, those of you that want to try to get a copy of this, you, you still can until they run out, of course. Uh, but as we look in this book some more, we look on page 49, and right there... You see that because of all these financial troubles that Dave Hunt was going through, he says down there, there was no hope, no way of escape, except perhaps suicide. Suddenly, this unthinkable alternative, like some loathsome reptilian intruder, slithered its way into my tortured mind and clung there mile after mile in spite of my horrified attempts to push it away. So apparently he's driving down the road and he's thinking about all his financial trouble and he's now contemplating killing himself So as he goes on in this book. As he continues through the book, he's, he's talking about, you know, how, how's God dealing with him? What is God doing in his life? And he has a lot of emotional experiences where he talks about being flooded with the love of God and things of this nature. Uh, like, for instance, here on page 64 in his book, he says, As I gave myself to God that night, I felt a strange stirring within that seemed to say that true love, which I had once denied, even existed, is so wonderfully great and good that an eternity would not be enough to taste it. And God himself must be the originator and only breath of life. And then at the bottom of the page there, you can see, I gave God my heart. Okay, and then as you get into the following chapters, uh, he's talking more about how he's going to his church and things of that nature. Uh, the Klimath, uh brethren that he's associated with, Page 78, he says, Something has changed in the very depth of my being. I was acutely aware that Christ was alive, living in me. 
we talked, he and I, and talked and talked. And then down near the bottom of the page, he says, I have been filled with the Holy Spirit. The immediate changes in my life astonished me. Easily irritated, especially by little annoyances, and possessed of a violent temper that most people never suspected. And he goes on about that. But he's now saying at this point, all of a sudden he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he's talking with Jesus. Uh, so he's got this kind of uh, supernatural type uh, experience he's describing. So some people may say that's like being born again or something like that. But now what he does in this book as he goes on is he ties, he ties his, his financial troubles and the things going wrong in his life with this, uh, this new life in Christ that he's finding, as he calls it, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's, he's starting to tell these church people he's been going to or having church services with about these things, and they're starting to get worried that he's turning into a Pentecostal. Right there, as you look on page 68, Private meetings were being held in homes where speaking in tongues was practiced and healings also were reportedly occurring. So when Dave Hunt has this spiritual experience, he gave his heart to Christ and he was filled with the Holy Spirit and so forth. Uh, he's starting to uh, think about supernatural healings and speaking in tongues. And this is what God is his home church worried about him, thinking he was turned into one of those Pentecostals. Okay, now we look on page 81, and he says, There was a four-square church a few blocks from the house that I was born in, and we used to pass it walking to and from town. He mentions a little bit further down the page about Amy McPherson was holding meetings and so forth, as you can see it there on the page. And of course, title of this chapter 12 here, as you can see, is They Shall Lay Hands on the Sick. So he's now mentioning one of these typical charismatic Pentecostal type uh, outfits, particularly with Amy McPherson in the Four Square Church. Uh, there's a lot of history about her, and it's not too good. But anyway, he's starting to give reference to these types of people and organizations. Okay, now as we look uh, further, we see on page 95, he talks about tongues. So he's getting into these spiritual experiences. But then on page 95, he says, It was then I became aware of strange words my voice was speaking in a language I could not understand. He goes on to say, as you can see the underlying passages there, beautiful language. It sounded so heavenly. So in other words, he's giving his description. You look also on page 96, as you see there, and you see the highlighted part, the fact that I was speaking in a strange and beautiful language seems unimportant. The deep spiritual communion I had with Christ is what thrilled me. So he's talking about how he was speaking in tongues. So here he's, you know, He's getting into the, the supernatural healing stuff and then speaking in tongues. And he's mentioning all this stuff to his church people and they're getting worried he's turned into a Pentecostal. 
And they're really getting annoyed with him as he describes in his book. And, you know, page 97 there, he, he says, One night Al's wife awoke out of a sound sleep to find herself praying in a strange language. So he goes on here about speaking in tongues and things of that nature. And it's starting to cause uh, trouble with his home church, the Plymouth Brethren. Okay, and then you look in page 99 here. He says a strange move. And basically what he tells you here is things on why you know when he was getting near the end of his life and he was so against Calvinism and was attacking it so vehemently. He's talking about things that had a profound influence on his life. As you see right down near the bottom of the page. Since discovering Andrew Murray, I had been devouring Christian writing at an incredible rate. Books by A.W. Tozer, E.F. Meyer, Charles Finney. Now, by the way, Charles Finney was an arch heretic. He was a Pelagian to the max. He, he denied uh, original sin and said we all, you know, we're not born sinners. We can just, if we want to make ourselves Christians, we can do that. Uh, we, have a, we have a video on him. In fact, we have two videos on him. One's the long version, the other one's the short version, but I would recommend the long version to really get to the core of the heretical antichrist teachings of Charles Finney. And you can see on your screen there the what it looks like on our YouTube channel. So see that, but apparently Dave Hunt likes this arch heretic Charles Finney and even says so right here. Finney was a heretic and in the end claimed that God was not sovereign. Man is not a sinner by nature. Justification is not imputed. The new birth is produced by successful techniques and revivals are produced by emotional appeals. To refute this non-biblical theology, please see our predestination series on YouTube. Simply type Larry Wessel's predestination in the YouTube search box. Second Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 we read, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of, and through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember 
that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Okay, and he, and he says this, William Law, this guy he's reading, has a lot to do with what he's getting into. And Law relates, in a way, to another, uh, another heretic. Because look what Dave Hunt says almost near the bottom of the page. He says, When first published in 1729, a serious call to a devout and holy life had shaken the Western world. This is a book by William Law, uh, Dave Hunt says, changing the lives of such famous men as John and Charles Wesley. The key note here is Law impacted John Wesley. Now, we just happen to have another video In fact, we have two videos on him also on John Wesley, who claimed himself to be an honest heathen. John Wesley himself claimed that he never loved God. And and, uh, he had felt nothing towards God. And he said this toward the end of his life, and it's all documented. As we have already stated, for Wesley's theological views can best be explained by the following article found in a Lutheran publication, The Christian News, May 5th, 2008. John Wesley, founder of Methodism, quote, I never believed, end quote. The March 2007 Journal of Theology of the Church of the Lutheran Confessions reviews John Wesley, a biography, published by Erdman's in 2003. It shows that Wesley lacked faith in the God he was preaching. Tompkins reveals that John Wesley wrote to his brother Charles in June of 1766, long after his, quote, conversion, end quote. Quote, I do not love God. I never did. Therefore, I have never believed in the Christian sense of the word. Therefore, I am only an honest heathen. I never had any other evidence of eternal or invisible world than I have now, and that is none at all, unless such as faintly shines from reason's glimmering ray. I have no direct witness of anything, invisible or eternal, end quote, from page 168. Tompkins comments, It is pitiful to see his faith even after all these years, still so dependent on the vicissitudes of his emotions. Constantly to put a burden on your disciples that you have constantly failed to lift yourself is monstrous, page 169. As you see there on your screen, we have John Wesley, a biography. And it's by Stephen Tompkins. I got this book like I get most of my books from uh, Amazon.com. <laughs> you, you can get old books from long ago, and it seems like they have, they have them. Uh, and if not, uh, they may be out of stock, but you never know when they'll get restocked by someone giving up an old book and selling it through Amazon. So this book documents uh, our videos. Our videos actually use this book for documentation about Wesley himself saying he was an honest heathen. He didn't believe in God, didn't love God, and all those things. So here we have Dave Hunt. Let me set this book down. Here we have Dave Hunt 
going with the likes of a Charles Finney, an arch-heretic Pelagian, and a John Wesley who said he didn't even believe in God, was an honest heathen. Uh, and he's, he's, look, he's looking up to people like these, you know, and, he, and this is documented in his book. So it makes sense when you have, uh, you know, Pelagians and uh, basically John Wesley being sort of like a religious atheist, uh, being against the sovereignty of God. Because when you really think about it, an atheist, as Wes, John Wesley claimed to be, is uh, someone who uh, denies the sovereignty of God because an atheist wants to be the sovereign himself. He wants to replace the sovereignty of God with the sovereignty of his own free will. And so does a Pelagian. So Dave Hunt obviously is, you know, likes that attitude of replacing the sovereignty of God with the sovereignty of man over the sovereignty of God. And we're seeing the roots of it right here in this book and why he's so against it. And when I get these, these Dave Hunt fans that are attacking Calvinism and attacking the doctrines of grace, attacking the sovereignty of God, I, I, like I said already, why don't you, instead of just believing what Dave Hunt says, or what Dave Hunt says Calvinists say. Why don't you go to the Calvinists themselves and start reading their works, learning what they have to say, and uh, getting your information from the horse's mouth rather, for, rather than this mouth, you know, the Confessions of Heretic. As far as hearing what the Calvinists themselves say, I recommend to our viewers to see our YouTube video top list of outstanding Bible teachers and preachers on sermonaudio.com for personal and group study. By the way, this video already has 489,000 plus views at the time of this recording. Uh, so apparently a lot of people want to find out who the good preachers are and do their own personal and group study. Anyway, in this particular video, I list large group of very good Bible teachers and preachers. Uh, but here in this clip, you'll just see a few of them because after all, if you want to see the whole video, you can go over there to see that. But here I'm just going to show you a short clip. And if you want to hear what five-point Calvinists have to say, that's where I'm recommending you listen to what they say themselves and not to what Dave Hunt says. So here you go. Here's a short clip from this video, Top List of Outstanding Bible Teachers and Preachers on SermonAudio.com for personal and group study. Uh, you will notice on the first chart, my, my top recommendation of someone you can listen to is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. 1834 to 1892 was England's best known preacher for most of the second half of the 19th century. In 1854, just four years after his conversion, Spurgeon, then only 20, became pastor of London's famed New Park Street Church, formerly pastored by the famous Baptist theologian, John Gill. The congregation quickly outgrew their building, moved to Exeter Hall, then to Surrey Music Hall. In these venues, Spurgeon frequently preached 
to audiences numbering more than 10,000, all in the days before electronic amplification. In 1861, the congregation moved permanently to the new Metropolitan Tabernacle. Next, John Bunyan. John Bunyan was born in 1628 at Elstrow near Bedford, England. Then after years of spiritual struggle, he found salvation in Christ and began to preach to groups of dissenters. Arrested and condemned to Bedford jail for illegal preaching, a punishment from which he might well have been freed by promising to give up his ministry. He remained in prison for nearly 12 years and after several years of liberty. His was an imprisonment unique in English literature for the quality of the fruit it bore, namely the incomparable Pilgrim's Progress. In fact, that's a famous uh, novel that you still find in today's Christian bookstores, Pilgrim's Progress. And he wrote it all while he was sitting in prison. I guess I can't say prison. He was sitting in the Bedford jail because they didn't like his preaching. But God used it. For his glory. Not not John Bunyan's glory, but God's glory. Next on my list of those preachers who will you will benefit from greatly if you listen to them on sermon audio is author W. Pink, eighteen eighty six to nineteen fifty two. Was born in Great Britain and immigrated to the US to study at Moody Bible Institute. He pastored churches in Colorado, California, Kentucky, and South Carolina before becoming an itinerant Bible teacher in 1919. He returned to his native land in 1934, taking up residence on the Isle of Lewis, Scotland, in 1940, and remained there until his death. Most of his works first appeared as articles in Studies and Scriptures, a monthly magazine concerned solely with the exposition of Scripture. He's got a great book called The Attributes of God and also another one called The Sovereignty of God. So if you get a chance, get your hands on those books. All right, next, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, December 20, 1899 to March 1st, 1981, was a Protestant Christian who headed much of the evangelical movement of the 20th century. He stood firm against what he saw as false liberal doctrines that had become a part of the Christian denominations of Wales and England. He believed strongly that Reformed evangelical Christians ought to leave the old denominations as a protest against what he perceived to be the increasing adoption of loose, unbiblical doctrines of mainstream churches. John Calvin, July 10th, 1509 to May 27th, 1564, was an influential French theologian and pastor during the Protestant Reformation. He was a principal figure in the development of the system of Christian theology later called Calvinism aspects of which include the doctrine of predestination and the absolute sovereignty of God and salvation of the human soul 
from death and eternal damnation. In these areas, Calvin was influenced by the Augustinian tradition. The Reformed and Presbyterian churches, which took to Calvin as the chief expositor of their beliefs, has spread throughout the world. Calvin was a tireless, polemic, and apologetic writer. In addition to his seminal work, Institutes of the Christian Religion, he wrote commentaries on most books of the Bible, as well as theological treatises and confessional documents. George Whitfield, December 27th, or perhaps December 16th, 1714 through September 30th, 1770, also known as George Whitfield, that's spelled without the E, was an English Anglican cleric who helped spread the Great Awakening in Britain and especially in the American colonies. Born in Gloucester, England, he attended Pembroke College, Oxford University. In 1740, Whitfield traveled to America where he preached a series of revivals that came to be known as the Great Awakening. He became perhaps the best-known preacher of Great Britain and North America during the 18th century because he traveled throughout the American colonies and grew great crowds in news coverage. He was one of the most widely recognized public figures in colonial America. Jonathan Edwards was born on October 5th 1703 in East Windsor, Connecticut, into a Puritan evangelical household. His childhood education, as well as his undergraduate years, 1716 to 1720, and graduate studies, 1721 to 1722 at Yale College, immersed him not only in the most current thought coming out of Europe, such as British empiricism, and continental rationalism, but also in the debates between the orthodox Calvinism of his Puritan forebears and the more liberal movements that challenged it, such as Deism, Socinianism, Arianism, and especially Anglican Arminianism. Author of the most famous sermon ever preached on North American soil, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Next, we find Richard Baxter, November 12, 1615 to December 8, 1691, was an English Puritan church leader, poet, hymn writer, theologian, and controversialist. Dean Stanley called him the chief of English Protestant schoolmen. After some false starts, he made his reputation by his ministry at Kidderminster and at about the same time began a long and prolific career as theological writer. After the Restoration, he refused preferment while retaining a non-separatist Presbyterian approach and became one of the most influential leaders of the nonconformists, spending time in prison. Charles Haddon Spurgeon had great respect for his theological work. Isaac Ambrose, 1604 to January 20th, 1664, was an English Puritan divine. He graduated with a B.A. from Bracenose College, Oxford, on 16 
24. He obtained the cure of Castleton, Derbyshire, in 1627. He was one of the king's four preachers in Lancashire in 1631. He was twice imprisoned by commissars of array. He worked for establishment of Presbyterianism successfully at Leeds, Preston, and Garstang, from whence he was ejected for nonconformity in 1662. He has also published religious works. Stephen Charnock, 1628 to 1680, Puritan divine, was an English Puritan Presbyterian clergyman born at the St. Catherine Cree Parish of London. Charnock began a co-pastorship at Crosby Hall in London in 1675. This was his last official place of ministry before his death in 1680. Nearly all of the numerous writings attributed to him were transcribed after his death. Charnock's theological frame rests chiefly in his discourses upon the existence and attributes of God. A series of lectures delivered to the members of his congregation at Crosby Hall. Unfortunately, however, the discourses were cut short by Charnock's death in 1680. The treatise is preserved today as The Existence and Attributes of God, first published posthumously in 1682. Go with uh, the uh, original source material. That's always the best way to get to the, uh, the root of the problem. You know, if I'm, if I'm getting ready for the, the debate, whether I'm debating Roman Catholics or Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever, whatever it is I'm getting ready to debate, I will study the other side's polemics. I will, study, I will study their belief systems, what they have to say. I won't study someone else's stuff about what they said. I'll go straight to the source so I'll be ready for what that person represents. So if you're going to attack Calvinism, the best thing to do is to go to works by Calvinists and, and see what they're saying in light of that. Like I said already on my video, The Sovereignty of God, I, I welcome you to uh, watch that video and then refute it if you can. Because uh, the only reason I'm a Calvinist is because... That's what the Bible teaches. <laughs> I believe the Bible. You know, I'm not, I'm not just believing what Dave Hunt says or John Wesley or Charles Finney. Uh, I'm going to just believe what the Bible says. That's what, I, that's what I'm all about. Uh, our show's on cable access here in Austin, Texas, and also uh, YouTube on the Internet, Vimeo video also, and other places that we put our stuff. Uh, I'm not trying to get anyone to join my church. I'm trying to get people into the Bible, the Word of God. Uh, that's that's what, where it's at for me. What does the Bible teach? Believe what the Bible says. That's what I want people to do. Facts and evidences. Number one, Genesis chapter one states, God said nine times. It's interesting in Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent, the devil, actually questions, hath God said? Point two, 
Malachi says, thus says the Lord, 23 times. God speaks from Genesis to Malachi. Point three, the Lord spoke appears 560 times in the first five books of the Bible alone. Point four, Isaiah claimed his message came directly from God 40 times. Ezekiel claimed that his message came from God 60 times. Jeremiah claims his message came from God 100 times. At least 3,800 times in the Old Testament, quote, the Lord spoke, end quote, appears. Point five. Jesus quoted from 24 Old Testament books alone. The quotes are still the same today. They have not been lost in transmission. Examples. Jesus believed Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Matthew chapter 19, verses 8 and 9. John chapter 7, verse 19. Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. Jesus believed Isaiah was a prophet. That's found in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. Cross-reference that with Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. Cross-reference that with Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus believed Daniel to be a prophet. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Mark chapter 13, verse 14. Jesus believed in the Adam and Eve account. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. Jesus believed the great flood and Noah accounts. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. Luke chapter 17, verse 26. Jesus believed the Sodom and Gomorrah accounts. Matthew chapter 11, verse 24. Luke chapter 17, 28 through 29. Jesus believed the accounts concerning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Luke chapter 20, verse 37. Matthew chapter 22, verse 32. Jesus believed in the Jonah and the great fish account. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 and following. Jesus believed the Old Testament was the word of God, authoritative and without error. Matthew chapter 23, verse 35. Luke chapter 24, verses 27 and 44. Matthew chapter 26, verse 54. Luke chapter 16, verse 17. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Luke 11, verse 51. Luke 17, 29, and also 32. Matthew 24, 15, 34, and 18. Mark chapter 12, verse 26. John chapter 6, 31, 32. Also, John chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus passed the same authority of the Old Testament to the New Testament. John 14, 26, John 15, 26 through 27, John 16, verses 12 through 15. Jesus believed the Psalms were inspired by God. Luke chapter 20, verse 21 through 44, John chapter 10, verse 34, cross-reference that with Psalm 82, verse 6. To summarize, Jesus simply believed the Bible was the Word of God, Old Testament, New Testament. And anyone that doesn't believe in the Bible as the Word of God, the inspired Word of God, doesn't believe Jesus. And if they don't believe in Jesus, they cannot be saved.
Remember, the way to shoot the head off the devil and his multitude of lies is with the sure word of God. In Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, Jesus defeated the devil three separate times by rebuking the devil with the word of God. Jesus said, quote, It is written in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus said, And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus responded to the devil's second temptation. Jesus responded again, It is written, Matthew chapter 4, verse 7. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And on the devil's final temptation in this section of scripture, Jesus rebuked the devil a third time in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, saying, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. That's a reference from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Okay, so when we're when we're talking about the Word of God, uh, you know, you got places like Second Timothy chapter uh, three verses fifteen through seventeen. You know, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which will make you wise unto salvation, all that kind of stuff. And, it, and it's everywhere, Old Testament, New Testament. You can't get away from it. So, like once again, I encourage people to watch that entire video, Inspiration of Scripture, plus of course this one with. Uh, let's face it, uh, I go to a little Reformed Baptist church here in Austin, Texas. And uh, if, all of it, if I was trying to get everybody out there to join my church, look, our little tiny building is not big enough for everybody. <laughs> you have to move here too. You know, we're not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying just believe what the Bible teaches. And, uh, and, and once you're born again by the Holy Spirit of God, you know, God will enlighten your mind and you'll, uh, you, you, you can join a church wherever you happen to be that's uh, the most reflective of what you understand the Bible to be teaching. And that can be anywhere in the world because the true body of Christ is not under a church structure or, or a particular group of buildings. It's not, oh, I have to join the, the uh, Roman Catholic Church in order to be a Christian. Or I have to go join the Campbellite Church of Christ to be a Christian. No, it's not that at all. The true body of Christ, the true church of Christ, is all those true believers, those true born-again, supernaturally born-again, spirit-wrought Christians out there who have true trusting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they can be anywhere in the world. That's the real church of Christ. That's the real body of Christ. Not being a member of some denominational sign the card here outfit, you know, because most churches will have wheat and tares in them. There'll be some saved people and some lost people in the same church. It's just the true believers, the true church are those who are truly redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so there's where a a lot of people get messed up. A lot of people don't seem to understand that. They think, I've got to be in the Seventh-day Adventist religion to, to make it to heaven. If I get past that 1844 
investigative judgment before I can actually get led into heaven. You know, or I've got to be in the Mormon church, or I've got to be in this outfit or that outfit, but that's not it. It's what the Bible says and what the Spirit of the Lord enlightens in the minds of his true believers. And then they can go find a fellowship because after all, Jesus said where there's two or more of you gathered together, there I am in the midst of you. So it's, it's not about these man-made religious structures and organizations that men have set up all over the world. And they try to get you to join so you can pay out the money. That's not it at all. Well, anyway, I'm getting off on a, a different tangent here. Let me get back into this uh, Dave Hunt book and, and move along here and finish up this uh, analysis. Okay, back here we see I just talked about Finney and I talked about uh, John Wesley and so forth. Well, the impact of these kinds of teachings. Well, look here on page 141. We see something interesting here by Dave Hunt. Look down at the bottom of the page. Bob Ross had <laughs> written in a note there saying, yes, like I guess that meant to Bob, I, I caught you. But anyway, here's what it, uh, Dave Hunt says. This experience impressed upon me the fact that it was not enough to say in general terms that I was surrendered to God's will. This could lead to fatalism that blithely assumed all happenings in life to be part of God's plan. It was my responsibility to keep in touch with God, to hear His voice, and to expect Him to give very clear guidance in the choices I must make. Okay, do you get that? So here, as you see that on the screen, here's Dave Hunt talking about he doesn't like the idea that everything, you know, all happenings in life to be part of God's plan. Of course, that's basically what the scripture teaches. <laughs> that everything that comes to pass has been ordained by God. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, it wouldn't come to pass if God hadn't allowed it to happen. It's as simple as that. But now Dave doesn't like that. Dave, Dave thinks that's fatalism. For those interested, they can see our video on YouTube called Biblical Predestination Number 2. Is Christian predestination fatalistic like Islam? And that's another uh, uh, phony attack against Calvinism when these Armenians and these uh, semi-Pelagians, that's what an Armenian is, is a semi-Pelagian, and the Pelagians themselves and all the rest of the heretics, uh, they always attack biblical Calvinism as being fatalism. And here we have Dave Hunt even mentioning that fact that if everything that comes to pass is uh, God's plan, that's fatalism. <laughs> so uh, he's, buying, he's buying a straw man argument and dishing it out through his book. Uh, and he's also putting the onus of everything on himself to make the choices and that God has to give him a clear guidance. But the clear guidance is not with these these emotional, inner, charismatic-type impressions you get in your mind or in your heart. It's not that at all. Uh, God, you know, he says throughout his book, God talked to him. I can give you all the all references here. 
For instance, Dave Hunt throughout this book is saying he's talking to God or God talked to him or he and Jesus talked and talked and talked and so forth. But as you can see on the screen here on page 196, about the middle of the page or a little bit under, just at dawn one morning, God talked to me there. The God who had seemed to hide himself revealed himself again. He swept the self-pity and cynicism out of my heart in one swift stroke of sudden insight that broke me down in sobs of wonder and worship. I felt his touch. I heard his voice. And he goes on from there. And he, you know, throughout his book, he's always talking about God saying something or this, that, or the other. Sometimes maybe an audible voice, maybe not, maybe an impression, so forth. But, you know, I don't have to do that. I, I talk to God every day. God talks to me. I talk to God because I, I pray to God. I, I, I pray to the God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So I talk to God that way. And God talks to me every day a lot because if I'm not reading the Bible, I'm listening to the Bible. <laughs> and so God talks to me through His Word, which is the Bible. So I'm on regular communication with God, both ways. I'm talking to him and he's telling me through his word by the power of the spirit what's going on. So I don't need all these these uh, emotional feelings and impressions. Uh, you know, a lot of the charismatics and Pentecostals out there believe in dream, signs and wonders and, and, and dreams and visions. But... Uh, that's not necessary when you have the Word of God in your hand. When it comes to all this charismatic and Pentecostal visions and dreams and things, please see our video series, our six-part video series, Blasphemous, Charismatic, and Pentecostal Mayhem. The following are a few clips from that series. Which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbor, as their fathers have forgotten me, my name for Baal. The prophet that has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, he saith. Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them, and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. For ye have perverted the words of the living God, of the Lord, of host, our God. Therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you, and I will forsake you, and the city that I gave you and your fathers, and cast you out of my presence. And I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual shame 
which shall not be forgotten. Don't look at me like I'm crazy, because you know what? It's going to go, and I prophesy. I prophesy under the anointing. People look at you if you jerk or shake, like something's wrong with you. Well, I want you to know the time is coming. If you don't shake and jerk, it's because you're not in that river. You're not in that river of what God's doing. Wake up, church. 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 It's time. It's time to rise or bride. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. Oh, church. Arise. Arise. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. You know what? My engine's revving to go. It's revving up. How about yours? And if it's not, you know what? If your engine is not revving up, you know what you need? You need a Holy Ghost enema right up your rear end. Because God won't tolerate it. He will not tolerate anything else. Say, I've never seen this part of you. Let me tell you something. Whoa. When you allow the Spirit of God and you don't worry about man's opinions. Because you know what? It's what God cares. It's what He thinks. Be God-pleasers. Don't be people-pleasers. Because if you're a people-pleaser, you're a butt-kisser. If you're a people-pleaser, you're a butt-kisser. And there's no other word for it. I mean, let it, you have no more time to even worry about your stinking high heels. Because you know what? We can't keep up with what God's doing. He's moving quickly. You better take them off. Take them off and, and get them off. They get your combat boots on because he's revving. It's revving up. It's revving up. Ride with the cloud. Ride with the cloud. Ride with the cloud. Ride with the cloud. This is Kenneth Copeland speaking on how big God is. Faith didn't come billowing out of some giant monster somewhere. It came out of the heart of a being that is very uncanny the way he's very much like you and me. A being that stands somewhere around 6'2", six, 6'3", six, that weighs somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple of hundred pounds, a little better, has a span of eight and, I mean, nine inches across, stood up and said, Light be! And this universe situated itself and went into motion. Glory to God. Hallelujah. God. Kenneth Copeland then says this, 200-pound God, it's about six foot two, then created Adam, who was another God. God's reason for creating Adam was his desire to reproduce himself. 
I mean a reproduction of himself. And in the Garden of Eden, he did that. He was not a little like God. He was not almost like God. He was not um, subordinate to God even. And Adam is as much like God as you could get. Just the same as Jesus, when he came into the earth, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He wasn't a lot like God. He's God manifested in the flesh. And I want you to know something. Adam in the Garden of Eden was God manifested in the flesh. Once you understand some of this theology taught by the word faith teachers, such as Kenneth Copeland, you can understand why someone like Fred Price, another TV word faith teacher, would say what he says next. God, the Father, cannot do anything in this earth realm without permission. And who does God need to get permission from to be able to do anything? Why, of course, the other God, Adam, and his descendants, who with their force of faith can command God and allow God to do the things that he would like to do. Listen to Benny Hinn on what a great being Adam was. Adam was a super being when God created him. I don't know whether people even know this, but he was the first superman that really ever lived. First of all, the scriptures declare clearly that he had dominion over the fowls of the air, the fish of the sea, which means he used to fly. Whoa. Well, of course. How can you have dominion over the birds and not be able to do what they do? Whoa. Actually, I mean, the, wait a minute. I, wait a minute. I'll prove it to you. Wait a minute, <laughs> Benny. I've never heard that. The word dominion yes. in the Hebrew clearly declares that if you have dominion over a subject, that you do everything that subject does. In other words, that subject, if it does something you, you cannot do, you don't have dominion over it. I'll prove it further. Adam not only flew, he flew to space. He used to be, he, 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 he was with one thought, he'd be on the moon. Not only that, but Adam was both male and female, according to Kenneth Copeland. They had always been together. Even when she was still part of him, he was as much female as he was male, like God is. And God separated the female part of him and then put them back together. And she was Adam. They, they were Adam. The, he was the man, she was the woman, he, she was the man with the womb. These strange and bizarre teachings of people like Kenneth Copeland and Hagen, Fred Price, John Avancini, and so forth of the word faith teachers, they have millions of followers, millions of dollars. They're all over the television waves. They put out literature and books, their Christian bookstores, have their materials in abundance. But what is the sum of these types of teachings that are so popular in the so-called Christian church today? Let's hear what Kenneth Copeland says about God. I was shocked when I found out who the biggest failure in the Bible actually is. Okay. You know, everybody asks, you say, who's the biggest failure? They say, Judas. Somebody else will say, no, I believe it's Adam. Well, how about the devil? 
<laughs> he's the most consistent failure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but he's not the biggest in terms of material failure and so forth. The biggest one in the whole Bible is God. Hmm. Oh, what, what, what? Don't you turn that set off. <laughs> you listen to it. You, I told you now, you sit still a minute. You know me well enough. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell something that I can't prove with the Bible. Apparently, these word faith preachers with their male, female God who creates other gods can prove anything from the Bible. And since Kenneth Copeland, the popular preacher who is mimicked by hosts of other word faith preachers around the country, can prove anything from the Bible, he can say that Jesus ceased to be God and became demonized when he hung on the cross. Listen as he states this very thing. He accepted the sin nature of Satan in his own spirit. You don't know what happened at the cross. Why do you think Moses, upon the instruction of God, raised a serpent upon that pole instead of a lamb? They used to bug me. I said, why in the world you got to put that snake up there, the sign of Satan? Why didn't you put a lamb on that pole? The Lord said, because it was the sign of Satan that was hanging on the cross. He said, I accepted in my own spirit, spiritual death, and the light was turned off. So Copeland says that Jesus ceased to be God, became the sign of Satan, and accepted spiritual death in his own spirit. This is a mockery of the gospel of Christ. Of all these things, people speaking in tongues, unaware to them, they're speaking blasphemies. Another guy speaking the Psalm, Psalm 1 in Hebrew, actual mm -hmm. Hebrew. Some other guy gets up and gives an interpretation that is totally foreign to what he just said in right. Hebrew. Right. And you got guys putting up signs in front of churches saying, we teach, we teach tongues here. And uh, at this point, I want you to see, see a video of uh, Sid Roth, a charismatic teacher. And he's showing you how to speak in tongues. Mm. So watch this clip. And if you've never prayed in tongues, if you follow my instructions, the anointing is here to do the rest. I can't do it for you, but I can tell you how to pray in supernatural languages. So you start speaking like little baby words and say them as fast as you humanly can when I begin to pray. And when the supernatural will become natural as you take a step, Peter, of faith. Raise your hands to holy God and begin to pray in a language you've never been instructed. If you don't move your tongue and speak, no one else will do anything. I know you don't know what to say. Make little nonsense syllables up. They're not nonsense. Whether the first words coming out of your spirit, do it faster. I said faster. I said faster. You can do it faster than that. If I had a gun in your room to do it faster. Oh, my God. 
And I can give you a list. Uh, faith has been supplanted by reason. Today, we don't do anything unless we understand it. When the, if you go to the scripture, every act of miracle of God, it cannot be explained. That's what supernatural means. Something that cannot be explained is beyond your head, is beyond your reason. If you want to receive your miracle now, you need to disconnect your head. <laughs> and your reason has its place. I'm not saying you're stupid, that we have to be stupid. That's not what I'm saying. But you can't get into the supernatural. You cannot move in the supernatural by, by the reason. Okay, now getting back to this, as we see, there's several pages there, or also on 203, for instance. I'll, I'll just bring that up real fast. Right there it says, When that voice had suddenly said to me in Merced, I will bring you through. So there again he's saying that God had said to him, I will bring you through. And further down the page, he's always talking about fleeces. I guess it's sort of like Gideon. And he talks about the prophecy you gave to me. Uh, he talks about prophecy. A lot of this sounds very charismatic. At the top of that same page there, you can see God's will. Tongues had not really been the issue. But anyway, it's understandable why everything he's talking about here, it sounds very Pentecostal, very charismatic. He's going on a lot of feelings, emotions, impressions. He's reading bad books by... Uh, Charles Finney and uh, John Wesley and uh, other people that are affected by, uh, you know, that are along those similar lines. In some cases, uh, some of the guys he was reading probably weren't too bad. And of course, I noticed in his book, he doesn't like J. Vernon McGee uh, with his through the, through the Bible broadcast. J. Vernon McGee was very much against the Pentecostal charismatic movement. And he talks about it in his book and, you know, I remember as a young Christian, J. Vernon McGee was still alive and still on the air, and I used to listen to him every day. I, heard, I could tell there was a lot of heretics on the Christian radio. But I, and, and I, you know, J. Vernon McGee, in my, as far as I'm concerned, he, he was an Arminian. But uh, in, my, in my experience, he was, he was a lovable one because uh, he, uh, he didn't have a Calvinistic understanding of a lot of verses he were, he went through, but but uh, you could tell he loved the Lord, and uh, he kind of made a big impression on me as I was listening to him teach the Word, uh, because uh, uh, 
I wanted to do what he had done. I was just a young man at the time, a new Christian back in 1981. And uh, he had said he, he had done more for the Lord after he retired than he ever did before he retired. And uh, I thought to myself, well, if I, if I preach the Word of God the way they preach it in the Bible, most of those guys got killed for what they said. And I'm not going to be able to support my family because the Scripture says you're worse than a heathen if you don't support your family. And uh, if I preach the Bible away and I try to make a living off that, I'm not going to make any living because they're not going to want to give me any money. They're going to, they want to, they want to crucify me or kill me, uh, you know, exile me to the island of Patmos or something like that. So I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to just get a, a secular job, earn some money to support my wife and kids. And, uh, and then maybe someday I'll be able to retire from all that and do like J. Vern McGee said, that, that he was able to do more for the Lord after he retired than he ever did be, before he retired. So, you know, at this point in my life, I'm still working two secular jobs. Uh, have been doing uh, one of them now for over 30 years while I've been doing this ministry at the same time. And I'm looking forward to someday being able to re- retire from these secular jobs and just do the ministry alone. And maybe I can, if God lets me, uh, do like J. Vernon McGee did after I retired from these secular jobs. Now, in his case, he was a preacher. So he was talking about full-time pastoring in his case. And then uh, after he got through with that, I'm talking about, you know, working secular jobs to feed my family and then go from there. So anyway, that's another thing I, uh, I thought was interesting that he... He doesn't seem to like uh, J. Vernon McGee talking against charismatic and Pentecostals, whereas I think J. Vernon McGee was right (laughs) on that. In fact, uh, we have uh, several videos that we have produced dealing with the Pentecostals and charismatics that I'd like to recommend to you right now as I get ready to finish this up. As you can see on your screen there, we have a video series, and this is just one of them. As you can see there, it says blasphemous charismatic and pentecostal mayhem part one and we have a whole series like this and it also ties into our playlist called phony tv preachers on our youtube channel see answers tv and we really get into quite a bit about this in fact as you look here now that kind of reminds me of somebody got mad about that as a matter of fact and as you can see on your screen someone asked the question you're not saying all pentecostals are like this i hope and then I answer him, we are saying that people should not listen to deluded, babbling, false prophets, but should only trust sola scriptura, scripture alone. See our videos on this. Without sola scriptura, the Bible alone, who is telling the truth? And of course, your link's there to it on YouTube. And we also have another one, sola scriptura debate. The Bible only, or must we now also have Roman Catholic traditions and rituals? And your links are there. Also on Sermon Audio, there's a bunch of good messages called Sola Scriptura. The the link is shown there. And also on Sermon Audio, Scripture Alone, with all the uh, excellent lectures about that on that link. Uh, To go beyond what God has said in His Word, and yet say it is from God, is to violate God's word and the character of God, bringing a curse upon those who do such things. 
See Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 23 through 31. Here's a quick quote from it. Quote, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. Then you read Jeremiah chapter 23, quote, I have heard what the prophets said, that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are the prophets of the deceit of their own heart. I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, He saith, Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, lies. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. Ye have perverted the words of the living God, of the Lord of hosts our God. Behold, I will utterly forget you, and I will forsake you. I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you, and a perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten. End quote. See also Isaiah 29:13, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. End quote. Isaiah 28, 9-17, Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men, that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because ye have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come upon us. For we have made lies our refuge, and upon falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. Also see John chapter 10, verse 35, quote, the scripture cannot be broken, end quote. Charismatics and Pentecostals prophesy in the name of the Lord often and repeatedly and are often and repeatedly proven false by what actually comes to pass, proving them to be false prophets who are lying about what the Holy Spirit said to them. Most of these modern-day Charismatics and Pentecostals, had they been living in Israel while Moses was still alive, would have been put to death for all the lies they have spoken in the name of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder come to pass, wherefore he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them, thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and ye shall serve Him and cleave unto Him. 
And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of bondage to thrust thee out of the way which the Lord thy God commanded thee to walk in. So shalt thou put the evil away from the midst of thee. End quote. God tests people according to Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 through 4. You can also cross-reference that to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Most of the chapter there in Deuteronomy 18. Uh, basically, Deuteronomy chapter 18 is talking about when you have a prophet that prophesies something in the name of the Lord, but it doesn't come to pass, and he's into all these crazy things at the same time, much like we see in charismatic and Pentecostal circles. But anyway... So God tests people according to Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, to see if they're going to listen to lying, false prophets who speak their dreams and visions falsely in the name of the Lord, or if they're going to follow His written word. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God because many false prophets are gone out into the world. See also Testing the Spirits by John MacArthur from his Strange Fire Conference. You see the link there. As far as we can see, the heretical history and beginnings of the modern-day charismatic and Pentecostal movement going back to 1901 and heretical founder Charles F. Parnum, born June 4th, 1873, to approximately January 29th, 1929, looks as phony as a $3 bill. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12 says, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned, who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now you just heard that about Charismatics and Pentecostals. Now look what Dave Hunt says about one of the main ones. Right here on page 185. I had sat on the stage at many a Catherine Kuhlman meeting in the Shrine Auditorium and watched miracles take place around me until I almost could not believe my own eyes. And yet each meeting left me pondering why. When so many were healed, there were so many who were not. So apparently... Dave Hunt is sitting on the stage, if I'm reading this right. I mean, that's you're looking at it on the screen. Look, see it there? I had sat on the stage at many a Catherine Kuhlman meeting in the Shrine Auditorium and watched miracles take place. He's, he's saying he's sitting up on the stage with Catherine Kuhlman. Now that's, I mean, that's Benny Hinn's icon. You know, Benny Hinn, the one that, said that uh, Adam flew to the moon and could swim like a fish and 
and do anything a fish could do. And, and uh, you know what his wife said about uh, the Holy Ghost enema? All that's in our, our charismatic videos and things like that. But Benny Hinn is just another arch heretic. And Catherine Kuhlman is one of Benny Hinn's uh, icons. In fact, Benny Hinn says that he uh, even likes to go visit Catherine Kuhlman's grave. And he, fe- he feels the anointing when he, when he puts his hands on the gravesite and all that kind of stuff. In fact, I think I read somewhere that Benny Hinn even has the keys to get into her grave. So, you know, I think somewhere, of course, this is like 15, 20 years ago now. Have, don't quote me as absolute truth. I've got it documented at home, but I didn't bring it with me. I'm just talking off, off the cuff here. But Benny Hinn even said on Catherine Kuhlman that... Uh, uh, he, he he even believes he gets the anointing from her bones in that grave to do supernatural works, uh, which may even uh, possibly be be uh, raising the dead, you know. Uh, and he had said things similar to that about people who can put their hands on the TV screen and uh, have people raised from the dead and all that kind of crazy nonsense, none of which of any of his... Any of his miracles, so-called miracles, have ever been documented. The guy's a complete phony and con man. And his hero is Catherine Kuhlman. You recognize the perfection of the Holy Ghost. I received a divine revelation that I had never received before. And that's the reason my message to you this morning is so important. Because things are happening. Young people, things are happening. And they're happening so quickly. That's the reason I feel it's so important that you might understand that he might use you in these closing moments of this dispensation. I had said for a long time, and I believe it with every atom of my being, I believe or remember something in this hour of great restoration. Everything that happened in the early church is being restored to the church now. Everything. And it's happening so very quickly. It's happening so fast. I believe that this is the very last youth generation before the great tribulation. I believe that. I've got to believe it, knowing the word of prophecy as I do. This is the last youth generation before the great tribulation. Sitting here in this assembly this Monday morning, face it, face facts, face God, face reality, face truth. You young people sitting here are the last youth generation in this dispensation.
Now here's Dave Hunt talking like he's he's singing on the stage with her. <laughs> no, no. Now, to me, it looks like uh, uh, Dave Hunt is keeping some pretty bad company. And with bad company like this, you get bad theology. You get heretical theology. And what does Dave Hunt's book say? Confessions of a Heretic. So anyway, I mean, he's the one saying it's his, his book. I'm just making some commentary here. Now, uh, let me, I've said plenty here. I've covered a lot of this, uh, I could go into how he got, you know, he talks about how he got excommunicated. He finally got thrown out is what happened. Uh, they thought he was too much like, a, you know, with this uh, miracle healing that he was into and speaking in tongues and, and uh, a lot of this charismatic Pentecostal type stuff. He finally got excommunicated and thrown, thrown out of the, uh, the church he had been in. They, they, they disassociated themselves with him. And they wanted to do it quietly and peacefully. And they said, if you don't cooperate, we'll kick you out where everybody will know about it. So that, that incident is probably one reason he wrote this book, is to kind of talk about that. Now, I'm going to conclude this. He concludes this book in a very interesting way. And now uh, we're going to go back here to page 214. It's right at, the, right at the very back of his book here. And it's the, the final chapter, the final pages and on page 214, as you see it there on your screen, he's uh, basically talking about the sovereignty of uh, man's free will. Look down there where uh, Bob Ross, when he had this book before he sent it to me, has highlighted some things. Uh, but he says, But I was convinced that he must and that he wanted to if men would only let him. What a world it would be. He's talking about God. He's saying, if men would only let God do what God wants to do, wow, what a great world this is going to be. If men would only let God do these things. You know, in our, uh, our video series on the blasphemous, charismatic, and Pentecostal uh, mayhem, we have a quote in there by Fred Price, another one of these word faith her heretic guys uh, associated with that movement where he's He's saying, God cannot do anything without permission. God, the Father, cannot do anything in this earth realm without permission. Uh, so because these, these heretical, charismatic, and Pentecostal leaders believe that man is sovereign. Man with his sovereign free will uh, is sovereign over God. And God must obey the commands that are, are given to him by these little gods, as Kenneth Copeland says, who command God to do what they want. Uh, I mean, it's absolute blasphemy and heresy to say any of that stuff because the Bible clearly says that God does anything he wants to do. He's in control. Uh, Daniel 4.35 comes comes to mind right off the bat. Uh, a bird can't do a thing without God determining what God wants to do with that bird. Uh, you get that in Isaiah. You get uh, It's all, just see my video, The Sovereignty of God. Look up all those verses and you'll, you'll clearly understand what I'm talking about. But here's Dave Hunt saying that, oh, if only 
men would let God do what he wants to do. What a great world this would be, you know, but the men, they just won't do it. And he goes on his, down on the bottom of this page here. He says, and tried my best to fashion a system of theology from its pages. But I now viewed it as a succession of stories relating to how God was trying to get man's attention. Let me read the whole thing. This gets even better now as I look at it. And you can see it on your screen. For so many years, I considered the Bible to be a book of doctrine and had tried my best to fashion a system of theology from its pages. But I now viewed it as a succession of stories relating how God was trying to get man's attention, trying to show man the way to his true destiny. Do you get the import of that? Do you see what Dave Hunt is saying right here? And he held to this all the rest of his life. Now, if you look at a lot of his books, he doesn't really have any real solid systematic Bible doctrine anywhere throughout his books. It's just a compilation of this, that, and the other, different news stories relating to the Bible prophecy, this, that, and the other, uh, snippet here, snippet there, but there's nothing systematic or orderly about it. And now we see the reason why, right here in his book on page 214. But I, he views the Bible as nothing more than a succession of stories relating how God was trying to get man's attention. So God's trying to get man's attention. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's it at all. I think as you read the Apostle Paul, and particularly in First and Second Timothy, that it's doctrine, it's sound doctrine, it's the teaching of the Word of God. And that Word is for His people who He's calling out of this world. Read First Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied elect you know it just in fact there's a there's the bible verse for you right on the screen you can see it right there the bible is a book of doctrine and it's meant for those people that peter is talking about right there in first peter chapter one verse two all right now getting back to finish up with dave hunt's book page 215 the sovereignty of man okay we look here the, right near the top of the page, God himself had stepped into space and time and human history to become a man so that he would bring a new birth of his spirit into all men. Get that? He would remake us on the inside if we would let him. We must let him, Dave Hunt says. But he alone could do the job. It would be a miracle. I believe in miracles. So there you have it. It's all about man letting God do something. If man will let God do that, then, then the miracle will happen. Then God will do something. Now notice, Dave Hunt and Fred Price have something in common here. God, the Father, 
cannot do anything in this earth realm without permission. So it's all about the sovereignty of man over the sovereignty of God. And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Uh, in fact, just, just refuting what Dave had to say right here at the end of his book. Uh, take a classic example. Here's, uh, here's Paul on the road to Damascus, breathing out threats and murders uh, as he's heading on his way to Damascus to, to, to imprison Christians there and get some sentenced to death. I mean, he, he's on his way. He's got the orders from the kingpins in the, in the, from the temple over there in Jerusalem, and he's going over there to Damascus to round up those evil Christians. So Jesus was the last thing on his mind outside of anyone that believed in Jesus. He was going to he was going to imprison, imprison them or kill them, one of the two. That's his only goal. Now, did Paul let Jesus appear to him on that road to Damascus? Did, did Jesus do that? When you read Acts chapter 9, read Acts chapter 9, open your Bible. I mean, I would, you know, don't depend on just reading what Dave said right here. After all, these are the confessions of a heretic. What is a heretic? Well, there's different kinds of heretics. Some, you can be heretical on non-essential Bible doctrine and still be a true Christian. So you could be a heretic uh, that's not a damnable heretic. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, for instance, you're a, you're a, you're, you're a damnable heretic because the doctrines you believe are so bad that they will actually cause you not to go to heaven. You know, to deny that Jesus is God in the flesh. If you deny that, then you have committed a damnable heresy and you will go to hell, according to the scripture. Now, if you need more on all that, uh, see our, our playlist on hell on our YouTube channel. We've got a bunch of videos there. But anyway, uh, to conclude this matter, we find when we read the just, and, and this is throughout the Bible, you find these where God is sovereignly acting on people, it's not the other way around. People aren't letting God do anything. Jesus appeared to Paul, and Jesus blinded Paul, and Jesus told Paul what to do. <laughs> there was no free will involved. Paul was on his way to kill Christians. Jesus had a totally different idea what to do with Paul. God determines uh, what's going on, not, not people. In fact, it says in Acts uh, 13, 48, those that were ordained to eternal life believed. So those that were ordained by God believed. And as we get into many other scriptures, now let's go back to this lopsided debate between Dr. James White and Dave Hunt and get a better biblical perspective as to what's going on here. And notice how Dave Hunt doesn't seem to get it based on what he says. Because I think if we want to talk about plain words, these are the plainest words I know. 
Uh, 2 Peter 3, 9, the context is to the elect of God. If you look at the passage, it says he is kind, he is patient toward you, and the only you in 2 Peter 3 are Christians, those who are the elect of God. 2 Peter 1, 1 says it's addressed to the elect, those who have the same faith as, uh, as we have. And that's the you delimits or gives the, the spectrum of the phrase, not wishing that any should perish. Who does he not wish that any perish? That is his elect people, those that he's given to his son, Jesus Christ. First Timothy 2.4 talks about all kinds of men. It talks about those in authority, kings and those who have the rulership over you, not every single individual person. And in fact, when you say, well, the normal person reading this, when the normal person reading, who isn't, wasn't an American, the normal person who heard, for example, John the Baptist say, here comes the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, they would not have thought the way that modern Arminians do today, that this means every single human being. They would have understood in the context in which it was spoken, the sin of the world means Jews and Gentiles. Just as the song of the Lamb in Revelation 5 is what? You have purchased with your blood, what? Men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and have made them a kingdom of priests unto our God. So the natural meaning of the words, I think we could argue that, I think I could argue that quite successfully I, I, in the context. Yeah, I, you know, your argument went right over my head. I'm not saying that God has to give grace to anybody. I'm saying the Bible says he's not willing that any should perish. Now, you twist that to make it a limited no, I, amount. I, re I reject he's, the he's assertion not, well, that I'm let, twisting second, that, Dave. Because you say you know, he's not willing that, that the elect should perish. That's redundant. Of no, it's not. not going to perish. No, it is not, Dave. And I would just like to say, since you're going to make the accusation I'm twisting Scripture, you haven't answered any of the passages that I have presented to you, you've run away from them to other passages. And I'd like to say, Dave, you're utilizing the traditions of men to do so. It is your tradition to understand world the way you do, all the way you do. I, it is your tradition to, to not see John 6 in its clarity, where it clearly says that all that the Father gives him, it's your tradition to see foreknown Fish, as meaning God. I don't have any God. traditions, James. Oh, oh Dave, <laughs> so, Dave, the, the people that I'm are the most... The Bible. Dave, the people that are most enslaved to tradition are the people who think they don't have any. That is my experience, my friend, and I'm telling you, we all have our traditions, and we have to take our traditions to the Bible to see what they are. That is vitally important. We all have our traditions. Exactly Dave. what we've been trying to do, to go to the Bible, it says, for God so loved the world. And it also says in John 17, 9, that I do not pray for the world. I pray for those you've given me out of the world. Can you explain John 17, 9? Well, then you, you reconcile that with, for God so loved the world. Of course he's not praying for the world in that context. You're great on context, James. He's I am. praying for his own. He's praying for those who he knows will be saved. And He's who are his own? The world. Are, they, are his own those that God the Father has given to him? Or are his own those who somehow, even though they're spiritually dead, somehow choose to make themselves his sheep? It takes both sides. God gives them to him, but they also have to say yes. So God can Spirit. give someone to the Son, and that person still not be saved. Is that your position? No, no. So He, if he only gives them to the Son if they say yes. Oh, so well, their, decision, their decision determines God's decision. No, it doesn't determine God's decision because God's decision is still that he's not willing that any should perish. They have the genuine power of choice or they couldn't love God. Moving from that debate between Dr. James Wyatt and Dave Hunt, I'm going to play a few clips here of my four-hour debate with another Arminian semi-Pelagian like Dave Hunt 
named Steve Michaela, who's also a non-Trinitarian, an anti-Trinitarian. Now, it's interesting about that in the sense that most cults are Arminian in their perspectives because it's the sovereignty of man and his free will over the sovereignty of God. That's how these cults like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, so forth, they're almost all Arminian, uh, semi-Pelagian or Pelagian in their outlook on the sovereignty of man over the sovereignty of God. Well, in this particular debate here with Steve McCaleb, I'm going to play a few clips and let people see how similar his arguments are. And he is a cultist because he denies the Trinity to Dave Hunt's perspective, which is the same in the case of the sovereignty of man over the sovereignty of God. As we get into this debate and get into quite a bit of detail, we're going to find out that Christ died personally, yes, for sins of his people, his elect, as Steve has already mentioned, and Jesus says his sheep, and he gave his life a ransom for many, not all, but many. Now we're going to, you know, this is just the beginning of the debate and we've got uh, lots to discuss, but uh, in my uh, opening uh, denial of some of the things he's saying, I'll, I'll say that men naturally object to God's power and sovereignty. Men, due to their carnal pride, like to limit God's sovereignty in various areas, especially in the area of salvation. Men try to say that God loves everybody and that God wants everybody to be saved. They say that God has no power to actually save anyone until after the lost sinner of his own free will makes a decision for Christ. In other words, it is the sinner, not God, who secures salvation. God merely offers everyone a chance as if he owed it to everyone or anyone, leaving the sinner to perform the work of saving himself by, quote, accepting Christ, end quote. Basically, from this theory, God does not save anyone in particular, just anyone who will have him. And of course, this would then make God a respecter of persons, choosing people to be saved based on their own efforts to attain salvation. If this theory is true, then John the Baptist must have, quote, accepted Christ, end quote, while still in the womb. Luke chapter 1, verse 15. These false doctrines do little more than exalt the will of man over the will of God. One, they reflect a God who is helpless and unable to keep countless multitudes from going to hell forever. Two, they reflect a God whose plan of salvation and eternal purposes are being defeated and overruled by the devices of the devil and the free will of man. And three, they reflect Christ as dying in vain for all the lost sinners who have despised and rejected him. If this is the case, then the precious blood of the Lamb is cheapened because of the fact that Christ's blood was and is insufficient and ineffective in saving all that he gave his life for. This doctrine, by the way, kind of is reminiscent of the uninvited guest in Matthew chapter 22, verses 11 through 14. When you look at that parable that Jesus gave in Matthew 22, verses 11 and 14, you find that there was a guy that got into the wedding feast without a wedding garb. And the guy says, how did you get in here? You don't have the proper apparel. And he was speechless. And they threw him out. Well, what you have is people trying to get into the kingdom of God a different way. If 
Jesus died for your sins and sanctified you by his blood, then you will be saved according to the scriptures. Jesus said in John uh, that he loses none. There's nothing, uh, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, there's nothing, neither height nor depth, principality or power, that can stop you from being saved, basically, if you are in Christ. So when he talks about, well, Christ's blood, well, I, once again, I see a non-secular here with the passage he's using out of Hebrews. I'm saying it has nothing to do with what we're talking about in context of who Jesus died for. If Jesus died for somebody, his sheep hear his voice, John chapter 10, and they follow him. Uh, a classic example uh, of all this is in uh, John chapter 6. You have the Father drawing people to Jesus. And Jesus says, If I be raised up, I will draw all men unto myself. Now that's a, a passage where, oh, you see, everybody's going to be saved because Jesus is drawing all men to himself. What is he talking 35, about? 35. He's talking about when he's raised up, people who realize he has paid the atoning Christ, uh, the atoning death in his crucifixion when he's raised up on that cross. And do people draw to him because of that? No, the cross of Christ actually repels people. They, they, they can't stand it. What he's talking about is people who actually understand and come to a faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ through his shed blood on the cross, they will be drawn to him by why? The Father has drawn him. John chapter 6. So we will start that at this time. All right, I'd just like to say, uh, Steve, you're putting words in my mouth when you're talking about the Egyptians. You're totally misconstruing what, I, what I'm talking about there when I say God. I'm talking about it in a time context of... When Moses is writing Deuteronomy chapter 7, okay, when he's writing there in the text and he's talking to the Israelites, he's, he's writing down what God said on why he chose them and not all these other people. Not, where's the scripture not, that said he didn't love the Egyptians? Where's that scripture that said he didn't love the Egyptians? You said he didn't minute, love the Egyptians. Wait a minute now. Where he, is said, that he said, I chose you. And yeah. he's given a reason why he chose them. Yes, he loved them. Which implies and he didn't did love say, anybody no, else. No, that's your assumption, Larry. Wait a minute. That's, that's your assumption. Why didn't he help? If he loved the other people, why didn't he do something for them? I love my wife, Larry. I love her dearly. Do you do anything for her? Yes, I'll lay down my life for my do wife. You do, yo, how come you don't do it for another guy's why, wife in another country? Why is that implying I don't love anybody else? I'm just saying, how come you don't love somebody, some woman you don't know in another country the same way you love your wife? I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, okay? I'm just saying... Here's God talking. God's talking about Himself. He said He loved the Israelites. Did He say only? Did He say Israelites only? He that, said, I chose you uh, of all the people. In fact, you're the only one, the few. In fact, I could pull it up say, for you. He didn't say you're the only ones I love. He said, I love thee. Right here. But he didn't, he didn't say you're the only ones I love. You're adding that, Larry. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting here. He didn't say Verse only. 5. But thus you shall do to them, you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and you down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It sounds like an only to me. But anyway, the Lord did not set his love on you nor chose you because you were more in number 
than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now that, to me, is saying they're the only ones. They're the fewest, not all the peoples of the earth. He doesn't love them. He's saying he includes everybody on the face so of the he earth. So only, he only saved Israelites in the Old Testament. That's the only people I'm telling said. you what he said at what? time and space. Now, when we get into New Testament, and that's where no. John 3.16 Old Testament, said, Larry. Did, did, you, did God only save Israelites in the Old Testament? When no. You read, no. When you read the, the, the uh, Pentateuch by Moses, you find that there can be some proselytes that can... Convert. So that, so that they just had to proves to Israel's doctrine and practice. That's right. But they weren't That's Israelites. Right. Yeah. They weren't Israelites. Well, they became Israelites. That's right. They came through oh, the practice. And so when they became an Israelite, that's when he loved them. Is that what you're saying? That's ridiculous. I'm, no, I'm saying what the text says. The text says out of all the people on the face of the earth, he loved them, and they were the fewest of all the people. Well, Moses, and that's was an what Egyptian. it says. Moses was an Egyptian. Where does it Did say? He he Moses? Lo- where does he say he loved all these guys? I think there's a word somewhere that says "you only." Uh, Steve's want that word "only" in there. Yeah, and I think you're right. I just don't have I that reference on me right now. We're only five minutes. Yeah, you yeah. only have I chosen to 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 bring about His plan on the earth. That had nothing to do with "you yeah. only." I love. This is just a quick insert into this debate, because at the time of the debate. I've always regretted the fact that I couldn't remember Amos chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. I knew it was out there, and Bob Ross had brought it up, but I couldn't remember exactly where it was at the time. But for our viewing audience here, we'll read these words from Amos. Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, there is your perfect example of how Steve McCaleb, an anti-Trinitarian, Armenian, semi-Pelagian, just like Dave Hunt, although Dave Hunt is a Trinitarian. Once again, Dave Hunt is an Armenian. We see that Steve McCaleb is totally mistaken here because he's trying to get that word only to be used as a way to eliminate God's election of the Israelites over all the other peoples on the face of the earth. And when the New Testament talks about election, once again, Armenians, semi-Pelagians, such as Dave Hunt or Steve McCaleb, will go to any lengths to escape it. Why did Jesus speak in parables? When we look in Mark chapter 4, verses 11 and following, Jesus is talking, it says, And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, in order that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. So here's Jesus intentionally teaching in parables so people won't understand what he's talking about. And he even says it's given to you guys to understand these mysteries, but everyone outside, I'm going to speak in parables so they won't get forgiven. I mean, now that doesn't sound like he's really trying to make a hearty attempt to save everybody, does it? It sounds like he's being a little bit particular 
and who he wants to be in on this mystery, particularly about that. In fact, we have the most oft-repeated verse in the New Testament, which is Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, where he's, he's talking about, Go and tell this people, Hear and ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. And you get references to this, Romans chapter 9, verse 15, where it says, I will show mercy unto whom I will show mercy. Romans uh, 11, 4 and 5 says, I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to, to the image of Baal, even so this present time. Also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Viewers are invited to check out Romans uh, 11, 8, Romans 9, 19, Romans 11, 7 for future reference for their own studies in, in that case. When we look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, we see in the King James it says, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hidden these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. And as you look at all the other translations, it, it, it reads the same way, where God is intentionally hiding these things to certain people and revealing them to other people. And, he, and God thinks this is a good idea. And Jesus then reemphasizes, like he did already in John chapter 6, that uh, no one can come to me unless my Father draws him. So here Jesus speaks in parables so people don't understand. You get Isaiah being quoted all over the place about their hearts being hardened and all this stuff. And then you get where God the Father is hiding this stuff so people won't believe and convert. I mean, how obvious does it have to be? Like I said, once again, another reference. See my video on the sovereignty of God. Uh, I give you uh, hundreds of Bible verses. In fact, that's what the video is mainly about, is just showing you all the biblical evidence for these biblical doctrines. But Dave Hunt, he doesn't like doctrine. He, he says right in here, he thought the Bible was a book of doctrine, but he realized, no, it's not that. It's just a bunch of stories about letting God do something. That is totally false. Uh, and... As I said before, uh, check our playlist, particularly on predestination on our YouTube channel, See Answers TV. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I, well, I am saying Dave Hunt is a heretic when it comes to uh, uh, Calvinism. He's wrong on the sovereignty of God, about as wrong as you can be, but like I said before, you don't have to be a biblical Calvinist like I am to be a true Christian. And in my own personal opinion of Dave, uh, you know, it kind of goes to what someone asked R.C. Sproul one time. They said, uh, are Arminians saved? Are Arminians Christians? And uh, Dave Hunt, I think, was a semi-Pelagian 
He was infected by people like uh, Finney and, and John Wesley, but uh, I don't think he was a, an actual Pelagian like Finney was. If you're an actual Pelagian, well, you're, you're on your way to hell. There's, there's no doubt about it. But uh, I think he was a semi-Pelagian, which is also another word for an Armenian who thinks that their free will has something to do with themselves getting saved. Uh, and R.C. Sproul answered that question. Are Arminians uh, Christians? And R.C. said, barely. So <laughs> I, think, I think Dave Hunt was barely a Christian, so I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, his head was all muddled because he didn't, he didn't pay attention to Bible doctrine. But that's exactly what Paul said to do in First and Second Timothy. Okay, so uh, Dave Hunt had a lot of good stuff on Roman Catholicism, for instance. In fact, uh, I encourage you, and you can see it there on your screen, a very good video that Dave Hunt did for us. It was an exclusive interview where Dave Hunt talks about Roman Catholicism. He did that for us back in 1999 at a conference in Dallas, Texas. And, uh, you know, if I thought Dave Hunt was not a, an actual Christian, I wouldn't be putting this up. But uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give him a, a barely entrance on that one. And uh, I think he did a good job on this particular uh, video talking about uh, the uh, gospelless Mother Teresa and the uh, compromiser Billy Graham. So... As we conclude here, I'd like to just recommend uh, two other uh, sources for you all to, to leave this video with. And you can see it on the screen. Uh, see our playlist uh, dealing with predestination, Arminianism, and Calvinism. We have quite a few videos uh, there on that subject. Uh, particularly see, as I've said many times, my video on the sovereignty of God uh, versus man-made religions, Hollywood movies, and petty emotionalism. And of course, our video, and you can see it right there, called Dave Hunt of the Berean Call, Calvinism, and the Baptist Confessions with Brother Bob Ross and myself. Okay, well, you know, that concludes this particular show. I, I just had to you know, kind of give a little payback to, to Dave there for his uh, what, love is this, what Love Is This book and his vicious attacks on Calvinism. And uh, so those viewers out there who, who are big Dave Hunt fans now have an opportunity by seeing this video to go and check the references I have given for Calvinism throughout this, this video and here particularly at the end with our playlists. Uh, with that, I will now conclude and hope to see you next time on another production of Christian Answers Presents. I'm Larry Wessels. Thank you again for being with us. And remember, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. God bless you all. Bye-bye. If you like our YouTube channel, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking 
the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. See related videos by tapping or clicking screens.